Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we hear what it's like to build a kit plane and the difficulties that come with flying with friends to different air shows. We also hear about how our storyteller started a business making airplane propellers. Well, uh, I built a uh, Sonarite 2 designed by John Manette back in 1979, 78 and 79. I was about 30 years old at the time. And the day I was deciding whether to build an airplane, I went down to his shop in Elgin, Illinois. And they had just had the original single place airplane and they had had 500 hours on the engine and they overhauled it at Volkswagen engine. And so here's this bright green airplane on the street outside their shop and they're cranking it over trying to start it. And he called me over. I just drove in the driveway. He called me over and said, hey, hold the tail for this thing, would you? I had no idea what was going on. So I walked over there and they're propping it through and it finally revs up and here's this little Volkswagen engine just screaming. And he had me, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, you're, you're thinking, debating whether to build an airplane or not. And the guy's already got one in your hand, you know, so it's pretty cool. So I built Sonarine 7879, took me about 750 hours. And back then there really weren't any kit planes where you have pre-made this and pre-made that. So he had done things like the wheel pants and the cowling was made. And then maybe the spars were bent because most people didn't have a big machine to bend spars. So it was a, not a kit-built airplane, but a plans-built airplane. So when, when it was time to buy the fuselage, I went over there and gave them my money. And they gave me a cardboard tube full of steel tubing. And the plans were 18 pages of legal size pages. And I said, is that all there is? <laughs> You're going to give me some like detailed directions on what to do? And he said, no. If you study the plans and lay them out, you'll you'll figure it out. And uh, I did, you know. Now, at the time, I was teaching at a high school. I was an industrial ed teacher. And so I had access on weekends and evenings to the metal shop and the wood shop and so forth. So that really made it substantially easier because I had all these tools, the lays and the milling machines. And so the, the 750 hours I logged building it was made shorter because I had access to all this equipment. So that was great. Uh, at the time, I was teaching an uh, aviation class. I had got started, and so my kids would come in, and we were doing basically ground school stuff. And so during the daytime, I would take the fuselage and hoist it up to the ceiling of the metal shop, and then in the nighttime or in the weekends, I'd lower it down, and I'd cut and weld and do all that sort of stuff. And uh, when I finally got the engine, then I would uh, hook the engine up, and we'd put it out in the backyard of the school while my class was going on. We'd fire the engine up and bother everybody else you know, no, no muffler just straight pipes so it was pretty noisy so uh, at that same time I was uh, I didn't have my private yet so at the same time I was flying a Cessna 140 and I got my private the day I did uh, this is uh, I had to fly it from Lake in the Hills Illinois which used to be Crystal Lake Illinois I had to fly it down to I think Joliet or somewhere down south side of Chicago it's a winter day I'm nervous as heck uh, as I'm taxing out, I get the airplane stuck in a snowbank in northern Illinois in the middle of the winter in January. So I had to shovel the airplane out to go get my private and flew down there in this little Cessna 140. And the examiner meets me. He had broken his arm, and it was his left arm. And they put it in a cast that was a strut. So it was fastened from his body up to the arm. So here I'm trying to fly this little 140, and he's got his elbow and his whole arm in, my, right in front of me. 
But I passed and got my private. And then uh, when the when the home built was built, uh, I had a grand total of about 100 hours of flying time. And when you fly your home built, you're the one that you built it. So you fly it, you test fly it. And of course, by then you've taxied back and forth and everything. And it was pretty good. So I took off and found out that it needed a whole lot of back force. But uh, first flight was fine. I have a, my brother um, was recording on video, which back then was Super 8. And over the years, we've transformed it into, you know, different video. And finally, it's on a disc. So I actually have the first landing, first takeout on the first landing from back then. And that's kind of cool. Everybody's wearing these big, heavy coats. So it was fun. It was fun. And so uh, I continued to fly it for about 17 years. I got married, had kids. When my kids were five years old, I'd put some Sears Roebuck catalogs in the front seat and strap them in and take them up there and uh, fly them around, get them upside down as aerobatic, just loops and rolls, stuff like that. But uh, So my kids from age five on, both all three of them got to fly with me. And their greatest fun was, of course, to get over their grade school and then kind of roll it upside down and dive on the school and pretend you had machine guns or something, you know. Push the button in the intercom and, you know, kids love that. So, uh, but it's, it's good. Uh, we were only about an hour from Oshkosh by air. So every year we'd fly up. And uh, since John Manette's chapter uh, was local, we had a lot of sunrise. And we'd go up as flights of four and flights of six and everything. Just It was just great fun. Then Sunfun came up and you're living in Illinois. And uh, by that time I actually had a radio in the airplane, a comm radio. And so a couple of us started flying to Sunfun, and it's about a thousand miles nautical each way. And uh, the first year there were uh, three of us going to go, and uh, Bob Brown, Bob O'Day, and I. And to get some range out of the airplane, we only carried 10 gallons of gas, and we burned four gallons an hour. So to get a little more range, we would take a six-gallon plastic outboard motor tank and strap it to the floorboards up front since we didn't have a passenger with us. So you had a six gallons on the floorboards. You could put your pack on the front seat. And then um, we'd have about almost four hours of fuel. But you, of course, had to have a transfer pump to transfer it. And you had to drill a hole in the gas tank to put the fuel back in. So Bob Brown and I take off with our extra tanks. And we're going about a half hour south. And Bob O'Day uh, was going to rendezvous with us and meet us. So we were overhead at DuPage Airport. And as he does his takeoff roll, he aborts the takeoff and taxis back to his hangar. So we call the air tower and we said, looks like we're going to have to land. So we pull down down there. Well, it works out that Bob's test flight with his new tank installation was what we witnessed. And he had not filled the rivets in when he put this extra thing under the fuel tank. He didn't fill the blind rivets in. And as he took off, two squirts of gas were coming out of the top of the tank and running down his instrument panel. So um, we uh, regrouped. Got some instant epoxy, five-minute epoxy, filled in those two rivet holes, and uh, the three of us took off and headed to Sun and Fun. Well, we got down to Bowling Green. It was very cold. We were wearing snowmobile suits and big boots and everything. It was Sun and Fun back then. It was, I think, in March, and it was a cold front, and it was very cold. So we landed at Bowling Green, refueled, got back in the airplanes, and as we're heading to the next stop, uh, which was going to be in uh, wherever we could go in Georgia, I noticed that Bob O'Day wasn't able to talk to me on the radio. We'd been talking back and forth and we lost calm with him. And the next thing I know, he pulls up right next to me, literally with, you know, within 20 feet away probably. And he's wagging his wings and he's gesturing in their cockpit, you know, big, big bubble cockpits. I said, you know, it's like, what do you want? You know, I couldn't <laughs> speak to me. Well, 
he stayed with me, and we ended up landing in, I think it was Macon, Georgia, somewhere along, maybe Tifton, but some, Macon or Tifton, Georgia. And we landed there. And as we pulled in, he pulled up next to me and uh, opened the cockpit, the canopy, and I said, well, what the heck was that all about? And he says, we're flying along, and the comm numbers on my old radio, back when they were you know, mechanical, he said, the set screw came loose. And when I changed frequencies, I couldn't tell what frequency I was on. So I couldn't talk to you anymore. And he said, then I had my chart opened up on top of my pack in the front seat. And he said, I had, so it's the only, it's the chart I needed to go through Georgia. And he said, I had it sitting there and all of a sudden it started vibrating and it kind of levitated and it just zipped out and totally disappeared right off the side of the airplane because our canopy frames would hinge on the on the right side, and there were only three hinges. And apparently, the edge of his chart got into that gap between the canopy and the upper frame. And of course, once any part of it got outside into the slipstream at 125, 30 miles an hour, it just totally zipped right outside of the airplane, instantly gone. So he had no com radio, and his chart was gone. And he was over Georgia, and he knew he was getting low on gas. So he figured he better pull up next to me. And everything. So that was how the chart, the uh, Babo days uh, trip to Sun and Fun went. On our next leg, we lost sight of Bobo, uh, Bob Brown. And he had said something on the radio about he was having a, a fuel situation of some sort. And he said, you guys keep going. I'm going to land at this little airport, and I'll catch up to you whenever. So we kept going, and uh, he landed. And uh, we talked to his wife, and she said he was having a fuel problem when he would meet us on the way back. He decided not to even get to Sun and Fun. So we were in Sun and Fun for a grand total of one day. And then we, the weather window said to turn around. So we turned around and we started heading back. Well, it worked out that Bob Brown and I had our second leg was back into Bowling Green, the same airport we had stopped at on the way back because it had a flight service station. And of course, you didn't have a computer. You couldn't get your weather. You had to do it over the telephone. But better yet, it was face-to-face with somebody. Well, they had a regular flight service station, so we got a good report. So Bob O'Day and I landed at Bowling Green on the way back. And the guy said, didn't you guys stop here on the way down a couple days ago? And we said, yeah. And he said, well, where's your buddy? Or something like that. And we said, well, we, we, he had to stop on the way down with a fuel problem. He says, well, actually, he's on TV right now. So he turned around, and on the TV is Bob Brown with a neck brace on being interviewed on the local Bowling Green TV station out in the field. And next to him was his airplane upside down. And about the same time... The door opens and Bob Brown walks in with his neck brace on. <laughs> and we said, what the heck, you know, where'd you come from? He said, well, I fiddled with my airplane down in Georgia and I thought I had the problem solved. So I'm flying back. And he said, I was in the pattern almost, not too long ago, about two hours ago. I was in the pattern at Bowling Green and my engine quit. And of course, anybody knows if you're in the pattern, you should be able to glide to the airport. Well, he didn't quite make it. He landed like a half a mile away in the field, and it flipped over. And he really wasn't hurt. He just uh, had to beat his way out of the airplane because the canopy wouldn't open. And uh, he said what happened is my fuel gauge, which is a sight tube, it's a plastic sight tube right down the panel. And he says, I was watching the fuel gauge go down, and I transferred the fuel from my transfer tank, my ox tank. And he says, but I looked at my watch, and I knew I had four hours of fuel. Well, Bob is an airline pilot, and of course, they don't know how many exactly gallons they have, so they fly on time. So he knew he had four hours of fuel, and he should have had fuel left, even though he was watching it go down the sight gauge. He ran out of gas. And the reason he ran out of gas is because he had put a pipe thread 
into a standard AN type fitting and his gascalator was draining fuel out the bottom of the airplane the whole time he's flying. And we ragged him forever about watching a sight gauge go down, <laughs> not believing it, thinking that, oh yeah, I should have four hours of gas. And he of course ran himself out of gas. That was the first trip to Center Fun. <laughs> so we, the next morning we went out and got a rented truck. We went out in the field and we uh, took the wings off his airplane, which were, he took out three big pins and the wings had come off like a lot of smaller airplanes. And uh, we'd never done it upside down before. And we had to cut holes in the fabric in the belly we got the wings off and got the airplane put onto a 25-foot truck or something like that. And he drove home, and then Bob O'Day and I flew home the rest of the way. So that's what happens when you go to Sunday Fun little airplanes with more than one person. It just seems to be the case. <laughs> something always happened. Every trip I went down there, which was 10 years in a row, somebody would have something happen. And um, my experience going to Sunday Fun by myself uh, with, with uh, a different person, two of us, as we had landed somewhere in Georgia once again, and uh, this was Fred Kipe. And when we made a takeoff on the way after refueling, my engine was surging badly. It was like really changing RPM, like a couple hundred RPM. You could just hear it in the headset. And I called Fred on the radio and I said, well, I better go back because there's something going on. So we turned around, we were just leaving the airport. We turned around, went back and landed. And uh, we checked the valves and we checked the carburetor. We had the cowling off. It did so many things that we ended up spending the night there. And the next morning we ran the engine up and it ran up fine. And uh, it wasn't until we were ready to go that I realized that what had happened is the day before, Fred had given me a piece of gum. And I normally wouldn't chew gum. But as I'm tacking out and taking off, I'm chewing gum. And as you're doing that, it's unseating my headset from my ears. And the surging noise was not the engine. It was me chewing gum, hearing the headset change the tone of the engine. So I get ragged mercilessly for years until finally up at Oshkosh one time, Randy... Uh, I can't think of Randy's last name. He worked for John Manette, and he said, I aborted a takeoff for exactly the same reason. I was chewing gum for the first time in flying airplane. So I didn't feel so bad after that. About the same time, a, f a friend, one of the people that worked for John Manette, Pete Buck, uh, had built a propeller out of uh, soft wood. And you could grab the tips of this little 54-inch prop and just bend them forward and back like two inches each way. He'd use a really soft wood. The fact that he used, instead of, like, I use hard maple as my material, and uh, Pete made his out of Luan, which is what they make plywood and underlayment for, and it's a very soft wood. It's, he thought it was mahogany, which would be okay, but there's many types of mahogany, just like there's many types of maple and birch and so forth, and the type he got was a very soft wood. So, so it did fly, but it really was so flexible that you could hear it hunting on takeoff. The, it was changing pitch and the blades were not even. So you hear this wowing noise. He was just nervous about it, flexing that much. And he knew I was teaching woods and metals, and he said, well, you should build a propeller. So the, so the Christmas of 1980, I went in the wood shop, and I came out two weeks later with a propeller that worked on my airplane. And I made, gave it to Pete Buck, and he tried it and worked it on his. So we made a couple more, and that was kind of the beginning of when I started making props. So the first one was Christmas of 80. And then I was teaching, as I said, and I, I, I taught about three more years and then quit. I just wanted to do something else. So I started making propellers. And I've been doing that full time since 83. Uh, when, it came to, when I decided to make propellers, uh, I bought my first ones from Harold Ream for my home built. And uh, Harold worked in his shop up in Dowson, Wisconsin. And uh, he had been an engineer and then done this in retirement. And I just thought it was really cool that a guy could work in his, literally not even in a hangar, just in a garage. And uh, he showed me around. He showed me how he did it. And uh, as I said, then I, I started kind of reverse engineering it. And so after I made one or two or three, they were all for the same kind of airplane, the Sonorize. But when it was time to make one for a different type of airplane, I was really, I felt venturing out because I didn't have a, 
something to fall back on. And um, one of the first ones I did is for a very easy, that was very popular back then. And there was a couple guys on the south side of Chicago that built a lot of them. And they, they had this fall down old hangar at um, the airport, Naperville Airport. I can't think of the name of it now, but it was in Naperville, Illinois. And they, somebody said, I should go talk to Ron and John. And they might be willing to test fly a propeller that I'd make. And so I went down there, and here's this rickety old hangar with real low ceilings. And I walk in, and they're watching Wide World of Sports Wrestling on TV while they're making their very easies. And they, they, over the years, as I knew them, they would either be watching Wide World Wrestling or cartoons while they're building their very easies. So they're really fun, fun guys. And uh, I said, I've made a couple propellers, but I've never made one for a very easy, and I'm thinking about doing it. And they said, well, I said, if I make it, will you, will you fly it? And they said, sure. And so we became good friends. And over the years, if I had to experiment on a propeller for a different airplane, I would send something down to them and or fly it down there usually. And uh, so thank goodness for Ron and John and uh, their willingness to give a shot. You know, that was good. And uh, eventually, then I just put an ad in Sport Aviation. And um, as I mentioned, also the uh, the weird ones that Sensenich doesn't want to deal with because they're one of a kind. And there's no sense in making a pattern for a machine. If you're only going to make one, you might as well just finish the whole propeller and be done with it. And uh, so they'll send me people that have put Subarus and motorcycle engines and all sorts of things into their <clears throat> home builds uh, because my method is, uh, is really just hand carving. So I'm very flexible. I can do uh, any diameter, any pitch, right hand, left hand. Uh, I've made a couple four-blade props over the years, and, those, and I made one five-bladed prop. And uh, it's really, it's not hard to carve. Actually, making multiple blade props is easy. It's the gluing that's difficult because the layers, as they intersect in the middle, they have to be really precisely measured. They have to be exactly the same thickness or you start getting bad glue lines, thick glue lines. So I, I've, over the years, uh, quit doing that. I simply make two-bladed propellers now. And probably by now, after all these years, I've made about, I think right around 4,000 of them by hand. And uh, we had a company uh, to mass produce propellers for ultralights back when, in the 80s when the ultralights were first starting. And uh, we bought a machine that would produce them eight at one time. And we cranked out, in 18 months, we cranked out 2,000 ultralight propellers. And my partners found out that it wasn't much fun to run this machine, this dusty, noisy machine. So um, we hired one guy's son, and he played in a rock band. And pretty soon, within like two weeks, we'd hired the whole band. So I had to teach the rock band how to break up this mass production of propellers. And one guy would run the machine, somebody else would run the sanders, uh, somebody else would do the finishing and so forth. And they'd stagger in about 11 in the morning after playing all night, go to work and, and uh, make propellers. And over a year and a half, we made 2,000 propellers, and I made a grand profit of 25 cents per propeller. That was it. So I took $500 grand total out of 2,000 propellers made, and we knew that wasn't going to work, so we folded that business up. It only lasted, oh, probably, like I said, about a year and a half. I haven't had a paycheck since 1983. <laughs> I run to the mailbox every day. <laughs> and, uh, but it's been good. I really have enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, being self-employed was hard to do after being a teacher, to just break off that whole job for life thing. And, and having, I had one kid at the time, and then I had three eventually. But it's been good. I've enjoyed it. And uh, here I am at Leeward Air Ranch, you know. It can't be too bad, you know. (laughs) 
Ed Sturba lives at Leeward Air Ranch and still produces custom propellers today. He also has his A&P license from Ember Riddle, which is where I go to school. Ed owns a Piper Tomahawk, which he was kind enough to take me flying in after our interview, even though it was raining a little. I noticed that the prop on his plane was made of aluminum, so I asked him why he hadn't made a prop for himself yet. He said that since it's a certified airplane, he actually couldn't put a custom propeller on it, and his buddies make fun of him all the time for buying a plane that he can't put his own prop on. You can check out pictures of Ed's home built, the tomahawk, and some of his propellers, as well as more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Ed and I talked about a lot of things that just couldn't fit into this episode, like some of the planes that his propellers went on and his time in the military. So if you can't get enough of these stories, you should check out our Patreon page and consider supporting. There you can have access to unedited interviews, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and even listen to finished episodes a week before they're released. This podcast isn't free to produce, and your support over on Patreon is what makes this show possible and ad-free. Please consider supporting us. Any amount is helpful. Even $1 per episode can help make the show better. You can check out our Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash thelogbookpodcast or by clicking on the orange banner in our website. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook.